Hey there, hi there, ho there. You are as welcome as can be. Okay, you are listening to Rob's observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. That opening jingle uh, is, is from Snow White and the, the Seven Dwarfs, if, I, if memory serves me correctly, which is perfect because I would categorize that as a fantasy. And we are continu- continuing our um, makeshift series we come into it. We come into it. We come out of it of sword and sorcery, and how it absolutely continues to change, change the comic book landscape, the comic book world. First, it was pulps and novels, and then it was comic books. Eventually, it was movies, TV, and then we got Game of Thrones, which to me is the ultimate. Like where where all of this was headed, and where the ultimate kind of uh, you know fruition of all of this kind of manifested itself. Uh, certainly the Lord of the Rings film cinematically broke broke down that door, but they had been knocking on that door for years. And we're going to go back to that, what, what I call the first age of, of, of Tolkien media, when the, the first age of uh, getting the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings in front of eyeballs via moving pictures was not the Peter Jackson stuff. And and you guys who are of my age, who were around in 78, 79, remember that uh, it, it was, uh, these were these these two televised films and then a theatrical picture, but the Lord of the Rings theatrical picture uh, by Ralph Bashi, which like one of the, if not the greatest animators producer of animated films ever, uh, also did, um, Fire and Ice, is it Cool World, but I, I, Fire and Ice, um, but, but Lord of the Rings was, oh my gosh, just a huge deal, saw it opening night, but again, these are the culminations of, of where the fantasy, uh, dollar, the fantasy mindset, the fantasy audience, um, and the fantasy content was heading back, uh, fr- from when the ball got rolling, when a major, comic book company, and, and again, this comic book company, Marvel Comics, was indeed struggling at the time, and we covered this in our earlier Sword and Sorcery, Barbarians at the Gate podcast from uh, several months back. It was one of our earlier episodes when we um, started up season two, and I talked about how Stan Lee uh, <laughs> didn't think uh, Conan the Barbarian would work as a comic book, and, and Roy Thomas, editor-in-chief at the time, was uh, was was going after lower level licenses because he thinks they would never get to Conan. They eventually got to Conan. They made a deal for Conan, and Conan uh, changed the course of uh, Marvel's publishing history at that time. Kind of the first life raft they 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 were given. The second most significant one would be Star Wars. But in in terms of licensing, in the late '60s, early '70s, Conan was the first life raft. As life raft, as I as I told you. Uh, when I would grab my comic books in 74, 75, and, uh, and, and, and here, here's one thing you guys, a, a little, 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 uh, sidebar that you guys need to understand that I haven't truly, I, I think, um, communicated, uh, as richly as it, as it needs to be communicated for, for kids of my age. And I, I've seen other, um, kids of that era, how, if, if I'm going to get comic books, and start reading them and devouring them, and as I've told you guys so many times, consuming them, like consuming them, like like a 
like a bag of uh, you know donuts or, or potato chips because that that I, they were and remain my absolute drug. The, uh, the 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 distribution network that I had, which was basically any, I, I always talk talk about the Seven Eleven, the liquor store, the grocery store near me, but those were everywhere. When I, when I would ride when I when I would go on Saturday errand trips uh, with my mom and, and so many of us, I, I you know think hop in the car and go on Saturday errand trips, okay? Uh, or at least we, we did. We took our kids in the early 2000s when we were building our family. And and instead of the drugstore or the, uh, you know, so many drugstores, there was Rexel Drugs, there was Woolworth Drugs. Uh, you know, um, now it's Target, now it's Walmart, now it's these big box stores. That, that, that did not exist when I was growing up, which explains sometimes the reason for multiple stops, there was Savon, there was Thrifty. Uh, Savon, Thrifty, Rexel, and Woolworth were the big kind of um, drugstore chains. And then your big uh, your, your big department stores were Sears, a place called Montgomery Ward, uh, May Company, and and then uh, there, 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 there was uh, Gemco, which G-E-M-C-O, I guess was primarily out here on the West Coast, as I've researched it in my um, nostalgic journeys back to find photos of Jemco, because Jemco was where I got all my f- formative power records and G.I. Joe dolls, action figures, all that stuff. Jemco, like uh, the Target of today, had a you know music section, a toy section, a clothing section, a hardware section, um, little you know kids' clothing, women's clothing. Um, you know, uh, they, they had they, some of them had grocery functions, but what they all had. Or spinner racks. They had uh, different magazine racks and spinner racks that you could encounter. Uh, you know your your uh, your comic book material. Most, not most, but a lot of kids. You know, you would gather around the magazine racks or the comic book racks. Also, very much adjacent to coloring books. So, so it it uh, it really drew on so many different. Um, awarenesses of kids you know you had your maybe your your tinier little girls and boys getting their game books and their coloring books then there was the comic books and then there was the more adult magazines which were is where you would get your heavy metal later your epic illustrated your um harris magazines which were you know vampirilla uh, uh that manner of that manner of variety a lot of horror magazines as well so so you know uh when, when you would go there, any random spinner rack, especially the ones near me, the comic books piled up. Th- th- these guys weren't um, sending comic books back. The whole idea was that uh, with the returnability of the newsstand, and that's where the direct market became so much more advantageous for all comic book publishers when the direct market took off in the 80s is because if I, comic book store, which is buying as part of the direct market, uh, not newsstand distribution. I'm going to f- buy from one of my comic book distributors that is distributing Marvel and DC and these independent comics like First and Kamiko and Dark Horse and ElfQuest, Warp Graphics, which we covered in our most recent fantasy sci-fi, I, I mean uh, sword and sorcery podcast. Uh, if I'm in the direct market and, and my store is named Comic Castle or Adventureland, these are comic book stores that I was frequenting in, in like 1980, 81, uh, I'm buying directly from the comic book store, and there are no returns. If I bought 100 X-Men, I am on the line for 100 X-Men, period, end of story. If the liquor store or the 7-Eleven buy 20 X-Men or 15 Superman, 
the deal on the newsstand was that after several months time a specific date uh, generally the one that corresponded on the cover date that's when you could pull it tear the cover off only and just send cover the cover so you could send five covers back that would render the comic book seemingly without value and certainly not worthy of the spinner rack or the magazine because your customers would think this is compromised okay um, now there was one store that I did encounter a drugstore that did they wanted it both ways they tore the covers off they sent them in and then they had uncovered comics for like a nickel 25 30 cent comics for a nickel so the guy's still trying to maximize in a cardboard box at the base of the register for kids to flip through ah along with some like used record albums there were these barren coverless comic books and sometimes if you really wanted a couple there was a couple comic books called star hunters in the late 70s by david Michelini and uh, bob layton and rich buckler and i got a couple coverless issues of those i think think two for 10 cents and you can't beat that when you're just looking for content okay no they didn't have covers they again this is also a time they did not entertain bags and boards i i, I i'm smiling so big right now <laughs> because again people come into my spinner rack and they're like what are you doing how, how, how can you have these without bags and boards oh the condition it's terrible some people are so conditioned to the condition and I'm like, nah, that's how I encountered them. And yes, I'm talking Frank Miller, Daredevil. And yes, I'm talking Jack Curry's Captain America and John Burns X-Men. And I have reader copies that are meant to be, you know, handled and read and enjoyed and not, um, they're never going to go back, backwards. No, no, no amount of uh, pressing guys who do this special pressing to get your books from a 9.2 to a 9.8 or a whatever. And I've, I have definitely seen some of the magic uh happen i i've got some friends who are are performing these feats but they can't do them you, 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 you generally can't take a five and make it a nine okay so so those are and when i'm talking about grading and cgc and the slabbing process when i say five and take it to a nine so uh they're just going to stay on my spinner rack the way i encountered them but sometimes behind uh one issue of champions or the avengers and champions was oh someday i'll devote an entire <laughs> an entire podcast to my favorite comic of the era, The Champions. You know what? Now that I've said it, I have to do it. Um, oh, man, you want to talk about a comic book that I was in love with. It was Marvel's uh, latest, greatest super team, but that is for another day other than sometimes you'd go, wait, they have issues 15, 14, 12, and 10. So you may be in 1975 getting a comic book from 1974 or a Conan a Conan 96, behind it's a 92 and an 89. And I've seen other guys from, in my age bracket, uh, they've encountered this as well. So some of these comics, when I say I'm, I'm in 1974 buying comics, but I got comics from 73, um, maybe 72 even, is because these stores, they're just like, man, we're just going to let them rack up. I mean, the liquor store that I talk of all the time, and again, people are like, what did your mom and dad think of you going to the liquor store? Well, they didn't know. The liquor store was literally, it is It is now, that liquor store is the 7-Eleven of the current era. The 7-Eleven vacated is now as a taco place. The Pizza Hut is still there. The grocery store became a 24-hour uh, fitness, and then it closed. This is as of 2021, which has kind of been consistent for the, with the last 10 years. But the liquor store had the spinner rack in the back, and it was chock full. It was chock full of every rack was swole. I mean, the comics were basically coming out 
of the wire rungs, the, the steel rungs, because they were so overpacked. But the guys who owned the liquor store, they didn't, they didn't care. Again, I would buy some comics, and as I w- they were ringing me up, I'd get a candy bar and, uh, and maybe a bag of chips because, cause, you know, th- then they made two bucks off little, little Robbie, who, um, who, who probably ate it all before I got back through the door um, on my skateboard. Um, I, 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 was, uh, I was such a fan and, a, and, and, and an avid uh, customer of that liquor store because, again, the, the liquor store, I didn't have to cross the street. I had to cross the street to get 7-Eleven. I had to cross the street to get to Staters. Um, my street, Broadway, this was the corner of Magnolia and Broadway. So if I just go up Broadway and stop on the corner and don't cross Magnolia, the liquor store was my closest comic book distribution center. And it had comics sometimes, again, X-Men 104, X-Men 102. True, true story, I bought X-Men 104 and X-Men 101 the same day. Uh, Phoenix rising from the, the, the space shuttle when Jean Grey has transformed that epic Dave Cockrum cover as well as the uh, Juggernaut, uh, uh, the, the Magneto uh, versus the X-Men versus the Magneto. Later on, I would go and I would hunt and find X-Men 103, which is the second part of the Juggernaut, or the first part. Uh, uh, man, is it the first part or the second part? Well, uh, 103 is, I believe, the second part of the Juggernaut Black Tom uh, battle, which is great. And uh, but I, and it, it took me years to find issue 102. So, so... But they are all, all of those books were obtained by me from the liquor store in 1976. And, you know, again, the, the, the stores just let the comics pile up. So you would have comic books from years past. Some of those treasury editions that I've talked about, like Superman Muhammad Ali, which came out in 1978, was there was a copy there in, in 79. Okay, I'm like, you know, do I have money to get a second copy? I didn't, but it was nice to see and flip through again because then I wasn't flipping through the copy that I had at home because I still, I did, I did, um, the condition mattered to me to a point. Um, I don't know if I've ever put, laid bare my, my personal, you know, the, the, the biggest grievance was that I would walk into a room having left a copy of the Avengers and a George Perez Avengers at that. Like, honestly, I know that the, the issue is 154. It was the beginning of this amazing um, underwater Atuma attacks supervillain team up crossover with Doctor Doom Avengers 154. My mom had used as a coaster, as she would use many of my comic books as coaster for her drink, so that it wouldn't make a ring on the side table in the TV room in our family room. And I would like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm using this as a coaster for my drink. And she was like, you don't really think your comic books are that important. And I would like. Uh, this cover has now a wet ring that will dry and be warped, and that's how it was. Um, so, so, so again, condition mattered to a point. Um, but you know, I just didn't want my mom using them as coasters for her drinks, which she often did. And I, I still love you, mom. I understood it. Um, there was no way on planet Earth that Patty Lifel was going to value those comic books the way that her uh, eight, nine, ten-year-old son was. But fantasy, fantasy comics, that is where. We are pivoting to today, and um, they started to appear in droves. Uh, you know, once Marvel took a flyer and Conan started to pop, if you got a comic, if you in those X Men, I imagine, and those Champions, and the Captain Americas that I was buying in seventy five, seventy six, some some issues from seventy four would have ads for gold coins of Conan, for um, postage stamps of Conan, for. For, and this is the Marvel Conan, drawn by Gil Kane, John Buscema, John Romita, 
um, senior in these individual, um, you know, uh, depictions. And, and, and so again, they got up to three Conan titles, which was more than the Fantastic Four or the Avengers that they were doing at that time, because they were doing, um, two Conan titles, plus the magazine books, which were extremely profitable from them. Uh, I, I was, um, reading on some of the, uh, martial arts, uh, spinoff magazines that Marvel did the deadly hands of Kung Fu, which was a companion piece to what they were doing with, Mar uh, all of their martial arts heroes. And the budgets on those magazines were much bigger than the comic books. They got m more money because there was more content, but just for comic book content alone, they were budgeted for 33 pages. And then they had to fill out the rest with interviews and and profiles and some martial arts um, instructional manuals and and movie reviews. But the uh, the pricing and the sales on those magazines were very well. And the longest running of all of them would turn out to be the Savage Sword of Conan. Again, reinforcing how this fantasy dollar, once it was introduced to Marvel, did not uh, relent. It was a good decade of uh, long um, dining out on the fantasy dollar. So the industry then responds. And we covered Cole, uh, The Conqueror, which was also from Robert E. Howard. We've talked of uh, DC um, going all in and doing Claw, The Untamed, um, Tor. Uh, they, they did all manner of, uh, of sword and sorcery books at DC in Warlord, which was their most successful by Mike Grell, uh, was, was, uh, was, you know, an example of how the, the, fantasy dollar what reaped a huge dividend and and there was enough that, that, that they threw so much at the wall to see if it stuck because if it stuck you got the Conan success well in the midst of all of this uh and, and I'm going to do a little sidebar here onto why artists love fantasy in the midst of all of this and remember also uh Conan was budgeted for lesser talents at the time Barry Windsor Smith was not the breakout star that he would go on to be and so they didn't want to allot John Buscema, who was pumping out two, two and a half books a month for them at the time of Conan's launch. Stan was very budget conscious. He didn't want to give big resources. So Roy stitched together a book that he wrote along with Barry Smith and Barry Smith, not yet Barry Windsor Smith, but Barry Smith would go on to kind of change perception of his work because he was so openly and perhaps maybe the most line-for-line uh, -line Kirby uh, uh, duplicate uh, that there was the time when, when, when Barry Windsor Smith did his Avengers work and did his X-Men assignments, he very much was biting off the um, Kirby model uh, to the extreme. I mean, and, and, and in, in watching interviews that I've watched recently of Barry Windsor Smith recounting uh, his fondness for Kirby, you could see it was just it was just genuine. That's what he was emulating, what he loved, as so many of us do when we break in. I was certainly emulating uh, John Byrne and Art Adams and Walt Simonson and uh, and Frank Miller, all the guys I absolutely loved and adored when I was breaking into comics. Um, even even somebody like a Kevin McGuire and his facial expressions that he was doing in 1986, 87 on the Justice League, Justice League International book, I was trying to incorporate those because I really liked it. And I saw that like, ooh, this is the next level of kind of um, the, the, the this real emphasis on telling the story through uh, a focus on 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 uh, facial expressions. So so we all you know openly wear our um, influences on our sleeve and 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 it's fun. And and I think Barry Smith was very much of that Kirby mindset. And it is in it is in Conan that he started to pull away and become his own um, person. And it took a while, but by the time he gets to adapting Red Nails 
and is fully incorporating all of his rendering techniques and his figures are, are also in the process of altering and changing. He is on his way to becoming this, really this fantasy master illustrator because he would really traffic in fantasy illustrations once he broke away from comics for you know, like six, seven years as part of his studio that he shared with um, Michael Kaluta, uh, Jeffrey Jones, and Bernie Wrightson. And they all kind of trafficked in the fantasy imagery. Um, maybe a little little dip into the sort the 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 horror um, uh, horror kind of industry, but most of it was 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 fantasy. And uh, and 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 the thing is, one of the ways that DC, as early as 1973, looked to capitalize on this trend towards sword and sorcery, and this is really the meat and the potatoes. One of the big topics we're going to discuss today is uh is the the uh the topic of sword and sorcery because the comic book was called sword and sorcery it ran for five issues the reason you should care about it is not so much that it can of the characters that it was adapting but of the talents that were um were drawing it and those talents are denny o'neill who would go on to become a big name writing not only batman but Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Daredevil. Um, Howard Chaikin, who would go on to do the Star Wars adaptation and kind of dance around with where he fit best until he blew the doors off doing his independent comic called American Flag, F-L-A-G-G, which was this kind of uh, state-of-the-art sci-fi futuristic um, post-apocalyptic, post well, uh, dystopian, dystopian uh, uh, futuristic tale. American Flag just was his calling card, became Signature, which would then go on to influence both Frank Miller and Alan Moore and everything that they did, both Watchmen and Dark Knight. Howard Chaikin, really, his launch pad was these sword and sorcery comics, along with some of the earliest on-record work by Walt Simonson, who will blow you away with the work that he did in this comic, as well as early entries by Mr. Jim Starlin. Um, and Neil Adams inks a ton of this stuff. So Sword and Sorcery is a comic book, uh, Tales of Fantastic Adventure, it says across the cover. Tales of Fantastic Adventure. Sword and Sorcery, Sword of Sorcery, I'm saying, and it's Sword of Sorcery now that I'm holding these comics in my hands. Sword of Sorcery, great little twist there, uh, featured two literary characters called Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Now, well, look at there. There's a bell to remind us. Um, Fafford and the Gray Mouser uh, was were two literary characters that were um, that made their debut uh, in in uh, Mr. Uh, Fritz Lieber is I believe um, that, 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 that this gentleman's name. He was the author that brought these characters to light. And uh, it was in, in, in these uh, DC comics with this talent that I am telling you about uh, that, that they, that they took, took hold. Um, they are two sword and sorcery heroes. Yes, Fritz Lieber. I thank God I got that name right. Okay. And it sounds like Larry Lieber, which is, and Stan Lieber, which are the surnames for Stan Lee. So Lieber, okay. Lieber was a very creative um, name. I mean, uh, so much creativity tie tied with the base surname of Lieber. In this case, Fritz Lieber. He is um, thought of 
as, as one of the godfathers of sword and sorcery, literally that term, uh, uh, along with uh, Robert E. Howard and Michael Moorcock, who, who, who uh, but both the, the, they were like the triumvirate, the, the, the three giant fantasy sword and sorcery novelists of their time. And Fafford, F-A-F-H-R-D, Fawford, F-A-F-H-R-D, and the Gray, G-R-A-Y, Mouser, M-O-U-S-E-R. Really cool, um, really the basis. Later on, honestly, Valiant did their version of Fawford and the Gray Mouser called Archer and Armstrong. It's literally very much so taking away the fact that one of them or both of them is immortal in, in Archer and Armstrong, the dynamic, the big guy, the small guy, the more agile, the archer, and the, kind of the ruffian, is is a byproduct of the mole of, of the model of Fawford and the Gray Mouser, and um, and and they uh, they are uh, basically modeled on Lieber and his friend is the, is the backstory, and uh, they 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 are first published in 1958, and he did a number of different Fritz Lieber did a number of short stories that eventually he would combine all those short stories into one edition. Okay. And, uh, and he organized them and then released them in in one kind of edition that everyone kind of really stood up and, and noticed them. And obviously you have uh, you, you have uh, Fawford, who is almost like Viking-like, giant, seven feet no less, uh, uh, seven feet tall. A northern barbarian is, is his technical uh, description. He is uh, skilled at both swordsmanship and singing. He is kind of a um, a, a funny lout swordsman. And uh, Mouser is is five feet tall, much smaller, a, a mercurial thief, a deadly swordsman, and he dabbles in wizardry, having been a wizard's apprentice. He he retains some skill with magic. Um, Fawford talks big. He's a romantic, um, but he uses his strength and practicality to usually settle every conflict. And Mouser is um, is more sentimental, but both are absolute rogues and in true Game of Thrones kind of uh, 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 manner, they're sellswords. They are swords for hire, working, on in, working through a medieval world. And they will have um, tons of different... Uh, you know, uh, uh, adventures for different barons, different kings. They'll battle lizards and dragons, um, magicians, wizards, witches. Okay, they're like this two kind of. Um, they're, they're, if you, the, the lethal weapon, kind of. Um, you know, opposites. Uh, you know, model, two kind of very different. One kind of loud and boorish, and another more reserved and, and softer spoken than. than then you have kind of your medieval lethal weapon combo here with Fawford and the Grey Mouser. So most of their stories take place in Nehuan, Nehuan, which is no one spelled backwards, Nehuan, and the city of Lankmar. And uh, is it is described as a world like in like no other. And uh, and and actually Fritz Lieber himself drew a map of the land of Nehuan. Um, that 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 he that is used to kind of uh, look at all the different locales that um, that Fawford and the Gray Mouser, you know, 
visit along the way. Now, they are not nearly as interesting, me telling you about them, as they are when you see them drawn. So again, the uh, the 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 actual um, the Fafford and the Grey Mouser short stories were eventually collected, but the short stories were 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 um, you know put in all manner of different kind of anthology uh, uh, books. The 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 fantastic stories of imagination, and uh, and and you know he would again write short stories that were in other different pulp novels, pulp editions, pulp pulps that 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 were so popular at the time. Same with Conan, that that they were seen as pulp was kind of like cheap, uh, cheap novels or or cheap uh, literature, not not high literature, which we all know means that they kicked ass. Because whenever they demean anything, <laughs> and they don't take it seriously, it's because it's feeding a genre that's so hungry for it, like ourselves. I mean, look, for, 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 you know, my, my view of Beastmaster is is not going. The Mark Singer, you know, Tanya Roberts epic is not going to um, match up with maybe someone else's view of The Godfather. But they're closer in my mind than you think. Okay, and 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 same with uh, the Sword and the Sorcerer with Lee Horsley. Okay. Um, these are these are fun comics, Dragon Slayer, fun fun movies, fun fun movie experiences that I lived on that I drank up. Excalibur, okay, um, you know that 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 is one of the greatest films. Period, not just fantasy films. I I I, I watch it twice yearly. I am always amazed at how advanced and how modern it continues to look, given that it is now plus forty years back when they shot Excalibur. And John Borman is an absolute genius. DC Comics gets the license to Fawford and the Grey Mouser. They don't, because as, as uncomfortable as I am saying Fawford and the Grey Mouser, so did they know easily that that is a tougher sell, which is why they put them in five issues of Sword of Sorcery, which we're going to get to. But prior to that, they introduced Fawford and the Grey Mouser in Wonder Woman, um, I mean, if of all things, Wonder Woman, uh, I think it's issue two hundred two, and and uh, and 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 this is how this was their this was their entry. Um, yes, Wonder Woman two hundred two is where they appear alongside Wonder Woman in a story, and uh, and that kind of put them on the map, and prepared for them to be spun off in their 1977, 1973 Sword of Sorcery DC Comics, which again, the pedigree of this book is its artists, is its talent. Um, the, the, the five issues of Sword and Sorcery featuring Fawford and the Grey Mouser, and I've got all of these piled up right next to me. I've got all my fantasy comics today because um, I, I just, I, I, here's the deal. You can obtain these fairly cheaply, and I think you're going to want them. I mean, I, the thing that blew me away in revisiting these books that I picked up in my youth um, was the fact that again, not only did Denny O'Neill draw them, and I'm going to tell you, Fawford, uh, Sword of Sorcery issue one is, I think, a must-have if you're a comic book artwork fan. Okay, um, it says Howard Shaken pencils. Then it says Krusty Bunkers inks. Now Krusty Bunkers, like the tribe, like M hands, like D hands. When I say M hands, M period hands, D period hands were monikers of the time. D hands was diverse hands. M hands was many hands. That's when um, I have an issue of the Avengers. John Byrne drew it. It has the Absorbing Man. I don't know the number off the top of my head. The Absorbing Man is battling the Avengers. The Avengers are Ms. Marvel, their Beast, Captain America, Iron Man. 
I have pages from this issue. Some pages are inked by Klaus Janssen, an amazing embellisher of the time. Some are inked by Terry Austin, John's go-to inker with the X-Men. Some are inked by an older inker named Mike Esposito. Some are inked by Al Milgram. Some are inked by Dan Green. Some are inked by Joseph Rubenstein. The, the job was so late, they dispersed it. Now, when it comes to the tribe and, and Krusty Bunkers, um, the tribe was a, a group of Filipino artists um, who would, all of great talent and, um, and renown in the comics industry and the fantasy industry at the time, they would uh, they would absolutely um, uh, uh, split up the pages and and uh, create you know do finishes over a penciler and they worked on all they worked on superhero stories martial arts stories fantasy stories the tribe did crusty bunkers in case you're wondering we've covered this before they were the Neil Adams studio this is what the continuity studios called their crusty bunkers under Neil's direction. Uh, Neil would, and Neil, now Neil tells me of this in 2016 when we are in uh, Florida at a show in Tampa and I had been really picking Neil's mind as to all of the different um, people that he inked. This is the time when he told me that he was absolutely everyone's best inker ever. He was, in fact, he, he tells me, Gene Colan's best inker. He was Gil Kane's best inker. He was John Buscema's best inker. He was, you name it. He was their best inker. I took him up on it. He inked me in my last G.I. Joe because I'm like, well, I'm going to have the best inkering me too. And he did in a double-page spread. He told me, Rob, I'll only do it if it's a two-page spread. So I did, and it was fantastic. Neil is, the lines that Neil, uh, the rendering, as much as the drawing of Neil um, Adams is, uh, is, is renowned, and as you guys know, if you've listened to this podcast, he's on my Mount Rushmore, okay? Uh, he is absolutely 100% on my Mount Rushmore. Um, he he is there because of not only his amazing ability to draw, his illustrative abilities to twist the figure, to um to in contort it, and not in an anatomically incorrect way, just in a way that we weren't used to. He would d- shoot the figure in the jumps and the leaps, and the and from a different perspective than we had seen before. Um, while I believe John Buscema is one of the best figure illustrators to ever touch comic books, and John's work has touched everyone, mostly the most modern representation of John Buscema is my former, my fellow Image Comics founder, Mark Silvestri, who then put on top even more kind of modern techniques. But at his base, Mark is like the son of, and he, he would tell you this, he's the son of John Buscema. He got started uh, aside from, from from some war stories and some horror stories and some DC Comics and anthologies, he got started doing King Conan, actually a fantasy book, uh, you know, for Marvel Comics. He he stepped in after John Buscema stepped away and Mark cut his teeth on Conan. They would later call it Conan the King. And he was doing that book in like 1986, prior to him, 85 and 86, prior to him um, graduating to the X-Men office. John B. and Neil Adams, two of the best illustrators, figure illustrators. Uh, Neil's forte was faces, which is going to come in play here, but also rendering styles. A, a, a mix and mass, uh, a, a very deliberate, very commercial, the most commercial use of cross-hatching I've ever seen. Barry Windsor Smith is the most 
experimental use of crosshatching I've ever seen. And so much so that it's amazing that most of it, if not all of it, works brilliantly. But Barry will turn those lines and crosshatch them in a manner that I have, that will really just like, whoa, blow your mind. And you go, wow, that, 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 that's amazing that that configuration of lines is actually so appealing to look at. In another hands, not so much. But Barry, really, his signature is rendering. And again, he comes from his fantasy forte is where he, when he was doing Red Nails, inking the adaptation of one of Conan's biggest sagas in the Marvel comics, he uh, he really started to... Uh, uh, he, 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 decided he was really polishing that approach. And when I did X-Force, I think six or seven, Sor- uh, Shatterstar and Sauron, you can see I was I had red nails in front of me and I was deliberately trying to emulate um, some of uh, what, what Barry was doing. And it, it was time consuming. It was not something that you could just do fast either. So so even more so was the, uh, the dedication to the time and the effort on the page that somebody like Barry Windsor Smith was doing. Neil, on the other hand, uh, gave a very deliberate... Uh, cross-hatching that was very pleasant to look at. Sometimes they would pull out of a solid black uh, of a cheekbone or under a lip or under the eyes. And it remains to this day a, a basis of which um, so much of modern art is, is it owes kind of its, its roots to. Um, it, it, it sprung out when you see um, Jorge Jimenez on Batman. There is rendering that he is doing that is based on what Neil Adams started. When you see... Um, you know, uh, again, uh, so much of what John Byrne went in, on and did, even as far as so much is in Man of Steel, when he, you know, did did Superman and did the big relaunch, so much of that, because also he was also catering to the guy who was, in my opinion, one of Neil's very best inkers, Dick Giordano, and who, when Dick drew on his own, would draw like Neil, again, coming from Continuity Studios. Howard Chaikin was part, uh, was clearly part of the, the group there in New York City, and and the crusty bunkers inks the first several issues over Howard on this sword of sorcery comic book, which again heavily features it is it is a the entire book is a showcase for Fawford the Barbarian and the Grey Mouser, and as you look through issue one and issue one is like thirty pages long. It is a long story, and 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 I don't say that in griping. I say that for the better. Howard Chaikin is a really good storyteller. Howard Chaikin um, was picked to do Star Wars by George Lucas, handpicked for a reason. He had done Cody um, Starbuck. He had done uh, some sci-fi stuff following this this stuff. But his base, pencils, um, and the storytelling of each of these pages is fantastic. The way he tilts the camera, the close-ups, the pullbacks, the establishing shots, the action choreography. But every single face in here was inked by Neil Adams. I have studied this again and again and again. And I think, Neil, there is a... I mean, literally every page on every face is just so handsome and commercial and appealing. And very few of the figures, I think, are... um, are being jammed out. It looks as if Neil did the majority of the inking, maybe not the backgrounds, but the figure inkings. I mean, I'm on page eight and there is a shot, uh, panels two and three of Fawford and the Grey Mouser as they are about to be met by a bunch of, uh, you know, cell swords themselves. Uh, and and, and th- from the profiles to, to the close-ups, to the mid-range shots, 
Um, now, now Dick Giordano could have been doing this along with Neil Adams, along with Terry Austin, along with all the people who are populating uh, Neil's continuity studios. But Neil would tell me, like, oh, mainly when you see a crusty bunkers job, Neil would tell me, as he did in 2016, that that he would always do most of the hair and faces. And, and again, somebody like Neil, um, the closest I got to something like this, so I could speak from experience as well, is when I was starting Extreme Studios, and it was fun because somebody like a Brian Murray, who was drawing Supreme for me for the first several pages, for I mean, first several issues, Brian was very seeped in a Neil Adams style. Brian had actually come from Continuity Studios as a young penciler. He spent time in New York and was in continuity learning from Neil directly. And Brian went on to have a giant advertising career because of that continuity studios training under Neil as well, because the continuity studios, which was Neil's studio, also did a huge amount of storyboard work, commercial work, um, print ads. Um, so, so continuity was a one-stop shop for comic books, animation, cartoons, television. Um, Neil really uh, was an artistic voice behind whether it was storyboards or the actual directing of concepts, ads, you know, print ads. Uh, continuity was doing it all, but he clearly took a liking to this Howard Shaken job because again, now I'm on page 10 and all of these close-ups are as good as anything that you are going to see out of any random Neil Adams comic book. So we are talking Howard Shaken of Star Wars, of American Flag, of Micronauts, who would go on to do The Shadow and Black Hawk. I mean, he is an absolute amazing veteran of comic books, a, a legacy guy, is being inked um, oh my gosh, page 12 has a some of, again, these faces, um, all again in, in a sword and sorcery fantasy background. We're talking castles, dungeons, caves, um, you know, uh, uh, th 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 this is, um, which, which means just so much fun. It, here's the thing I need to address. Why are so many great artists doing fantasy? They're doing it because they love it. Why does fantasy draw so many great artists? Fantasy draws so many great artists because in fantasy, as I'm looking here on this two-page spread, uh, now it's not a spread, it's the, the, they're, they're facing each other. Page 14 and 15 of Sword of Sorcery number one. Um, the, the bad guys are going to now chase, uh, take, take pursuit of Fawford and the Grey Monster who are on their horses and they're heading to a castle with a winding road. And the castle is very impromptu. It's, it's got structure to it. But it is not like drawing downtown Manhattan, the streets of Los Angeles, of San Francisco. You do not have to adhere to a certain grid or perspective, which is deemed by all of us as work. There is no mechanical constructs like a helicopter, a biplane. Um, there are no handguns, rifles. There is no you know, commercial jetliners. Um, there are no technical, really, uh, conceits that you have to follow. You have to draw more animals, horses, foxes, um, bears, dragons, sea monsters. But so much of that is of your making, of your impromptu design. But again, these horses are magnificent. Howard Chaikin's underdrawing of these horses and Neil Adams' rendering of these horses. Uh, this is one of the finest comic book illustration, illustrated jobs that I have in my collection. Um, Neil Adams inks a couple of issues of Conan over John Buscema, and they're not as good as this. Sword of Sorcery number one, Howard Shaken being inked by the Krusty Bunkers and by all the faces and the hair and so many of the figures, Neil did the lion's share of this job. And uh, 
I just uh, am so... It, it's it's so beautiful to look at. Again, fantasy. You'll Barry Windsor Smith, John Buscema, who we're going to get into on another episode with his epic uh, uh, fantasy work that was beyond Conan, that that was actually even more, you know, fantastical. Uh, Howard Shaken, Neil Adams, Barry Windsor Smith, John Buscema. You got Frank Frazetta, one of the most celebrated sci-fi fantasy illustrators of all time who came, started in comic books. Frank Frazetta just excelled at fantasy. Why? Because of the imagery, because of the lack of, again, you don't have to draw, um, an, uh, if you're going to draw a poster of King Kong, you're going to draw all of Manhattan underneath him as they did for the 1976 re-release. It's a breathtaking poster, but there's a lot of work there. A lot of artists just want to have fun. They just want to draw swashbuckling duels, um, horse pursuits, Guys walking through jungles, magic forests, under bridges, castles, caves. Um, you know, guys on bo- uh, being attacked on a boat out in the ocean by a giant sea monster. It 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 lends itself to less rules, less technical rules. Which, from, you know, from personal experience, I can tell you, it's a lot of fun to draw forests or, uh, you know. Desert landscapes, a castle in the distance, a distance, a dungeon, temples. Think of think of the Schwarzenegger Conan film, and um, you know all those million steps that 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 Arnold's Conan has to has to climb, getting into the temple, and then eventually battling the giant serpent, and um, you know all of the different uh, uh, you know cell swords that are that are chasing him on horseback across the desert, his training, you know, on the bluffs, rocks, debris, sand, um, trees, uh, uh, being nailed to a tree. These are exciting visuals. That's why fantasy draws so much great talent. But what what became for me, and maybe for you, Joe Madiera of X-Men fame's biggest calling card was a fantasy book called Battle Chasers. So, um, which kind of set off a... Sword and Sorcery Rebirth, and we're not there yet because we're still back here in 1973 with Sword of Sorcery. And on page 20, there is a beautiful close-up. Again, Howard Jenkins' great layouts and storytelling under this beautiful, commercial, crisp um, uh, rendering lines of Neil Adams. When I inked Brian Murray on Supreme, he had some Neil Adams basis, but at the time there was a definitely slick 90s inking. So what I would do is I would go back on Brian Murray, not changing the eyes, the nose, the... Um, he was attempting to do kind of a modern rendering style. I went on there with a slicker line. I inked every figure in Supreme uh, for, for a, a couple of issues. And um, I inked the hair and, and mainly the faces. And it is what Neil was doing to these guys when he went over them. He was asserting his stamp on their art as I was asserting my stamp on that art at the time. And I would use different tools than Brian was using. Brian was not using a Hunt 102 crow quill. Um, He was not using a brush. He was using more markers and technical pens. But I got different results with my, um, my, my, my work. And so I attacked his work with the tools that I was most comfortable. Um, and and th- while this felt like a 30-page comic, it is, it is 23 pages of story of Sword of Sorcerer number one. And I am telling you, the combination of Howard Chaikin and Neil Adams on all 23 pages 
is just as beautiful as you're ever going to get in, 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 in terms of like a medieval comic book adventure with tons of swordplay, swashbuckling, guys jumping through windows onto the streets, um, you know, jumping on scaffolding, running, um, be, be, you know, being imprisoned, um, uh, breaking out of, you know, their cells, uh, fleeing on horseback, battling dark lords. Uh, th this is just amazing stuff. Again, DC leaned heavily into making this work. This goes across each and every issue. Um, Walt Simonson does some covers. He does uh, covers to, to Sword and Sorcery. And in issue um, in issue uh, three and, and, and issue four, is um, you can hear me, you know, untaping these. I told you I brought a pile of these today. Now these are fairly um, affordable, but Dark Horse did recollect. They collected this. Uh, 2008, they did a. It's not Sword of Sorcery. It's Fawford and the Grey Mouser. Um, you can get it on Amazon, eBay. I checked earlier. It's at a decent, reasonable price. Uh, I am flipping through is issue three again. Howard Shaken. It does not look like Neil is on the faces here anymore. And um, it, it, it says Howard Shaken Inc. Um, in the credits. But uh, in, in uh, just, again, for my money, more of classic Shaken is coming through here. But you can definitely see he is being finished. Uh, again, this is probably by... Now, some pages are wildly... This is wildly inconsistent as compared to the perfection of every single page, which I believe Neil Adams touched every face in every single page and most of the figures in issue one. In Sword of Sorcery issue two, sometimes it looks like the very best of Howard Shaken, then other times it looks as if other artists are taking their, um, are, 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 are with different stylistic um, bends are, are coming in over him. Um, it's, it's very exciting stuff. Uh, issue four is where you get your your um, split stories, and one of them is completely by Walt Simonson. Again, Shaken Inc. is also uh, 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 credited with issue four of Sword of Sorcery. Another exciting the layouts, the storytelling are fantastic, but the um, the the absolute pretty delicate inking of the faces and the and the rendering is not as prevalent. But then you get to the last. Page, and I am telling you, this is some of, if not the earliest, Walt Simonson. He does a story in the back where you are going to see the first glimpse of how he depicts what you would see as the Midgard serpent in uh, in the Thor sagas is a giant serpent that attacks Fawford and Grey Mouncer. This is prior to Walt Simonson's Metal Men, prior to Walt Simonson's Manhunter, um, prior to his um, Hercules work. This is Fawford and the Grey Mouser. The backstory is prophecy. It is brilliant. It has a Gandalf-looking wizard in it. It has the giant Midgard-looking serpent. Um, it's whimsical. His his Mouser is more comedic. His um, uh, but 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 no less dangerous. This stuff with him battling the serpent is is great-looking stuff. And and it's early Walt, which had a more combination of stippling rendering. Um, his, his, uh, his, his different, um, di just different, uh, graphic 
very graphic. Walt has a very graphic style. He utilizes lots of different approaches, lines, and inking techniques, and it's all on display in this uh, in this uh, eight-page backup story, which is fantastic. So, and then this, the the series, you know, they can tell me that it ended uh, at at five due to sales. I I, I would not know better. Um, what I know is that uh, issue five again. Uh, is all um, Walt Simonson. He draws the whole damn story. And and so if you want to see one of the comic book greats and the back issue, in the, the back story in issue five of Sword and Sorcery. So you got Howard Chaykin. You got Neil Adams. <clears throat> I'm telling you, somebody told me that Mike Kaluta weighs in on some of these inks and I'm going to look into that. Um, but then you've got Walt Simonson and then at the end you've got Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin... Uh, finishes issue five with a standalone uh, six-page story called The Mouse Alone, uh, 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 a spotlight on the Gray Mouser, which is great pencils, inks by Jim Starlin. It is a great... So 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 you are getting the guys who would go on to give you Adam Warlock, Captain Marvel, the Infinity War, those amazing Avengers annuals, the guys who are going to blow your mind, uh, uh, adapting Star Wars, uh, uh, creating Beta Ray Bill, doing the Thor, the modern day Thor run of a lifetime. All cutting their teeth and contributing killer, great, amazing stories in D- DC's Sword of Sorcery. Dark Horse reprinted it. Um, again, uh, Walt actually does the covers to issue um, issue five. Uh, and and uh, Dark Horse reprinted it as Fawford and the Gray Mouser. You know, maybe you can get it for 16, 17 bucks. It's a cool little trade. The individual issues are going to put you back, you know, three bucks, four bucks if you can find them. I checked before this. Not all of them are readily available. Some people are, are bundling them together. Maybe you have to buy all five, maybe issues one or two. Do I believe these are worth, these are checking out? Yes, I would not have committed an entire podcast telling you of the early work of Howard Chaykin, Jim Starlin, Neil Adams, and Walt Simonson. If I didn't think it was absolutely 100% worth you checking out, and it is, and it's great. It is absolutely great stuff. Sword of Sorcery. I alluded to the 78, 79 Rankin Bass was an animated uh, company that uh, adapted The Hobbit and Return of the King. But somehow the rights to The Lord of the Rings and The Two Towers were by Bakshi. And so within about 18 months, you got all of these. The Hobbit was broadcast on Channel 5 out here in Southern California. Um, on a midweek, they made a big deal, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. And that Rankin-Bass, uh, very distinct, kind of a Walt Simonson-y art style, um, was very entertaining to me as a kid. I totally bought into Bilbo the entire journey. It's it's it's. Uh, I bought it on DVD about 15 years ago when I saw that they had collected it or, or, or manufactured it and had to have it. Then, um, then theatrically, Lord of the Rings came about through Ralph Bakshi's company, of who um, several guys who would go on to do fantastic comic book work, some of it fantasy comic book work. Mike Plug, who did Werewolf by Night, Frankenstein's Monster, um, a, a, a subject of an upcoming fantasy sword and sorcery episode called Weird World. Michael Plug, Paul Smith, who would go on to blow our minds on X-Men and Doctor Strange, was one of the dedicated animators on Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, which again takes you all the way to the Two Towers and then stops. So imagine just getting Peter Jackson's 
first two installments and then Return of the King and, and not getting the finish because Return of the King is then by Rankin Bass and comes on the air about a year or two later. Same, it, he, out here it was syndicated. It was a syndicated release, not a network release. But it was the weirdest thing ever. And and not until Peter Jackson gave us the film versions did we get one coherent version in, in terms of media. But I highly recommend all of them because it was, again, a byproduct in the 70s. Because if you're going to get a movie out in 79, you started making that in 76. If you got a Hobbit by Rankin Bass on in 78, you started making that 75, 76, getting, getting the ball rolling. Because these are fairly, especially for the time, very intricate, very detailed fantasy adaptations. But it was... Uh, part of this new surge into uh, fantasy entertainment that was always kind of regulated the B and the C level. But Ralph Bakshi and Rankin Bass were big animation houses. And to get them to do the two syndicated movies that aired only... So you got the basically the beginning of the saga, which is The Hobbit, and 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 then you pick up with... with um, with you know Frodo's adventure in the Bakshi movies, and then wraps it up, and they did not work together. They were actually kind of at odds. They do not for one minute believe that that that, that these were you know united fronts, but it's just everybody got the rights to what they got, and they um, Rankin Bass got the the beginning and the end, and the middle was Bakshi. But when Lord of the Rings came out, there was some pretty lame action figures, but there were a ton of coffee table books, art of books, illustrated books, cutting up different scenes. Um, you know, to make kind of different sections of the Bakshi Ralph Lord of the Rings movie into uh, into different adventures. You know, um, and and I bought them all. I grabbed them all. I had to have them. They they they, they were they were kind of uh, turned into birthday gifts and and Christmas gifts of that season because again it was about the art. And the reason I brought you the sword and the sort of sorcery and the Howard Chaykin, Neil Adams, Walt Simonson, Jim Starlin produced comics today is because these are great looking comics. And again. Artists love fantasy because the rules are thrown out the door. And when we revisit this subject again, um, you, I am going to take you down uh, the, the rabbit hole of what I believe one of John Buscema's signature works, which is not Conan, which is not The Avengers, not Silver Surfer. And it came about late in the 70s. And I think he really wanted to lean hard into what was going on. And it is Marvel's echo, their response to all the stuff that I just told you, the Rankin-Bass, Hobbit, Return of the King movies, and the Bakshi Lord of the Rings, Marvel, I think, wanted to respond to that, which is where you're going to get Weird World and Warriors of the Shadow Realm and some of the best, most amazing work of John Buscema's entire career. And I'm going to get to that on our next installment. But today was about Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Now, they went on and did further adventures. Mike Mignola would draw several Fafford of the Grey and, and Grey Mouser um, in the 90s. Those have also been collected. Um, so, so again, these fan again it leans also into the fact that artists love fantasy. They love the fantasy realm. They love sword and sorcery. They love medieval. It's just a different muscle you get to work, and it is less restrictive, much more open uh, to to artistic interpretation and imagination. Um, so, Fawford and the Great Mouser have had they have had a great comic book um, um, representation by some of the greats guys who would go on to be great, who are clearly starting their career out, but Neil has so much love in this first issue. It is definitely worth checking out via the collection or if you get Sword of Sorcery number one um, in, 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 by itself. So today we worked that muscle of Sword and Sorcery with Sword of Sorcery, took you down the rabbit hole with all these great um, talents. Um, you guys, thank you for continuing to listen. I hope I, uh, just like with ElfQuest, I hope that you were exposed to something you didn't hear of today or didn't know of or um, something that you per per perhaps could seek out. I do believe 
Um, if you seek these comics out, they are very entertaining. Issue one is a beautiful, just comic books. I say it all the time. They're about pictures. They're not about words. If, if it's just going to be words, then you're, you're reading novels. No, we make graphic illustration comic books. And uh, Sword of Sorcery number one is a beauty. Uh, this is the time of the show where I share with you guys some of your very generous reviews. And I am so excited to, to bring those um, to you guys today as I do each and every time um, because you guys are so generous um, with your words. And we need it. The, 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 our show needs it. We rely on you guys to spread the word and to leave these reviews and those five stars and to um, throw your support behind the show because it's so important and I cannot thank you enough for not only listening to the show, talking about the show, sharing your enthusiasm for the show on social media and writing these reviews. I'm going to read this review. This comes from The Retro Couple. The underscore retro underscore couple. The best comic book podcast. Rob is a great talker. I have been told this. Rob is a great talker and does not rely on guests to carry the show. Very credible, awesome stories from inside the comic book book business, both as a fan, because he genuinely loves comic books, as well as a pro. This is pretty much the best comic book podcast available. Enough said. Retro Couple, the Retro Couple, I cannot thank you enough for this most generous review. Thank you. Thank you for leaving it. Um, Just thank you for your um, support and your enthusiasm for the show. Again, at the end of every show, I read your reviews that you leave about Rob's Observations um, I, I, I read them here at the end of, of, of every show. Extreme Enthusiasm. This is from The Coming of Doug. The Coming of Doug. D-O-U-G. Doug, thank you for this. Uh, Extreme Enthusiasm. I was just turning double digits when Image Comics dropped. So, of course, I was a huge fan. As I got older and my taste developed, I fell away from the original Image Comics crew. I heard about this podcast tangentially on another podcast, in fact, and thought, Rob Liefeld... Boy, I used to love that guy. Maybe I'll give him a listen. Well, guess what? Turns out I still love him. What a cool podcast with great topics. It's great to hear a guy who's taken plenty of lumps, sounds so non-jaded, which he should not be, but is. Hey, the coming of Doug, thank you. Thank you for giving this podcast a try. Thanks for the shout out. Thank you for the enthusiasm. I am on social media, on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram with the blue check. That's really me. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Robert Liefeld, the full name. That's Twitter, blue check. Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. Twitter, at Robert Liefeld. I'm all over Facebook. I am in a million groups. I am so accessible. You can find me there, Twitter, Instagram, any of these great social media outlets. I love talking to you guys. I love exchanging thoughts, ideas, enthusiasm. Thank you so much. Um, for all the energy that you bring to this podcast, um, I, I appreciate it so much. Uh, this 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 is the time in the podcast as we wind down that you commit to me that you're going to take care of yourself, and I believe you, and you're going to stay safe, and we are going to talk again real soon. <laughs>